before I actually start formally, um, can I draw your attention to a couple of things? Uh, one is, I would like you to stick up your hand if you don't have a copy of the Old Testament with you. Okay, see all those lovely people over there? Um, you need to pass the Bible on to them so that they can actually follow the text. Or you need to snuggle up next to them and say, Hi, I'm your friend, we're going to share the text together. That's going to be really helpful. Uh, second thing is, I also want to draw your attention to the outline. It's a lie. Um, you know, one of the things about preparing talks is often uh, you've got to do it actually before the talk's actually written. Um, so, uh, the outline's still basically okay, right? But the problem is, if, if it's quarter two, right, and I haven't gone to the second page, it's okay. Uh, don't panic, um, because most of what I've got to say is actually on the first page, and the second half, well, that's just the second half. So uh, let me lead in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who has spoken, uh, that you've spoken to in the past uh, to our forefathers in many and various ways. But in these last days you've spoken to us in your Son. And so, dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you speak to us today by your Spirit uh, to our hearts. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, I wonder if you like mnemonics. Uh, you know, aid memoirs, things to help you remember things. Uh, it's helped me pass pieces of exams. Uh, this wonderful building, chemistry building, I have survived many, many times. Uh, in fact, uh, we often, uh, when I was doing med here, I, I used to have biochem uh, lectures here in this building as well. Um, and, and one of the things that you have to learn in second year biochemistry is, is the Krebs cycle, the tricarboxyl. Yeah, see, people nod their heads and you think this is a really big pain, right? Um, well, I learned that by seeing the biochemist songbook, the, the whole Krebs cycle for the tune of Waltzing Matilda. So you go to Medstock and you actually get this book called uh, Waltzing Matilda to the tune of the biochemist songbook, anyway. Uh, I like things that help me in my memory. And a lot of people have said that the Bible itself, the shape of the Bible, is actually a memory aid for Isaiah, the book. Right? Did you know that? So, how many books of the Bible are there? 66. 66, right? Some of you don't know that. But you can actually work that out. Okay, so here you go. Uh, can you get to this? Write it out. How many letters in the new? Three. How many letters in the testament? Nine, right? See someone on the Tuesday, sort of the Isaiah. Right? And much like the, the, the Bible is divided into two halves, in, into two big sections of the Old Testament and New Testament. Isaiah has also got two major sections. The first section having 39 chapters, the second uh, section having 27 chapters. That's the structure of Isaiah. And just like the Bible, at the junction of the two major sections of the Bible is a momentous event which took place, which actually shook the world to its foundations. Uh, which actually introduced a whole new phase of history. Well, that event, of course, was the uh, coming into this world of our Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death and his resurrection. And at the junction of the two sections of Isaiah is also a momentous event that shook Israel to its foundation. They actually introduced a whole new phase of history. And if you've been coming along to, to these talks, you know that that was the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of its temple. Uh, in 587 BC and the exile of the people to Babylon. 
And so the first 39 chapters of Isaiah actually look forward to that event. They see it coming. They explain why it's coming. They anticipate that disaster that's actually going to come upon the nation. And then the next 27 chapters are actually addressed to the completely new situation that actually arises out of that shattering event. So just as um, Jesus, his coming, is a pivot around the whole Bible terms, well, so the destruction of Jerusalem is a pivot around which Isaiah turns. And, and, and like the Bible, the first part of the book of Isaiah, that, that first 39 chapters, uh, like the Old Testament, actually has prophecies pointing to the coming Messiah, to the Christ, uh, especially in his role as the son of David. But then in the second part of the book, uh, the person of the prophecies uh, seems to be already present, uh, and the, like Jesus arriving at the scene, really, uh, and, and it's seen as a different, different guise, and this time as a suffering servant. And there are other similarities, and much like the New Testament starting off with John the Baptist, crying out, you know, one in the, uh, the wilderness, uh, crying out. Well, so too, in chapter 40, the Gospel bit of Isaiah starts off with the voice of one calling, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Uh, and much like the New Testament, the second half of Isaiah, the last 27 chapters describe the presentation, the ministry, the suffering, the exaltation of the suffering servant of God. Other similarities, mountain events, right? Big mountain events, you think Sinai, right? Exodus, you know, people gather around the mountain, you know, getting God's word, all that sort of stuff. Guess what happens in chapter 2 of the book of Isaiah? Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Yeah, it's funny little similarities. Now my question is, what does all this mean? Nothing, really. Uh, um, nothing by itself. I mean, it's not as though the chapter numbers and the verses numbers are inspired or something like that. It's just that I couldn't think of a better introduction. Um, but it, it's my sort of, I guess, excuse to ask you the question, how are you going with your reading of Isaiah? Uh, it's been our book of the year. We've been reading it for the last, well, we've had 12, 13 weeks now, looking at Isaiah. And, and I guess my hope is that you actually know Isaiah better now. You actually know more of Isaiah now than, than say, Colin Buchanan's Isaiah 53.6, you know, with the Baba do Baba, you know, that sort of stuff. Or that, that it's just a compilation of Christmas great hits until us a child is born or something. My great hope is that you actually see that Isaiah, rather than it being a compilation of little bits, it actually fits together as a grand whole. It starts somewhere, it goes somewhere. Because today, what we're dealing with is, I guess, the revelation bit of Isaiah, the great hope and the promise that we have. Um, uh, the, the great hope and promise, especially for the people of Israel, who are in the exile, who are due to be destroyed by the Babylonians. What hope had they got? Well, in chapter 65 of Isaiah, if you can turn up there, uh, we actually have the promise of a new age, uh, starting from verse 17 of chapter 65. The promise of a new age. Now, it's more than just a state of affairs. It's more than just a, 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 a time or something like that. It's promising a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. Not that it's automatically going to happen. God is going to create it, it says there. Just as he created the heavens and the earth in the first place. Now in chapter 65, verse 17, follow it with me. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. The past troubles, they're going to be forgotten. They're going to be hidden. The former troubles you'll see back in verse 16. Because the former troubles are forgotten and they're hidden from my sight. And so the new heavens and the new earth, uh, the problems of the past are going to be obliterated. Uh, have a look at verse 18. But instead, be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. 
For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. It's going to be a time of greatness. Have a look at those words. Gladness, delight, joy, rejoice. They're the words of verse 18 and 19. There's going to be no more weeping. There's no more crying. Uh, there's going to be times of happiness and joy and excitement and pleasure because the horrors of death, well in verse 20, will be gone. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a mere youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered a curse. God is going to rule. The horrors of eviction, of dispossession will be gone in verses 21 and 22. It's amazing language. But even the wolf will lie with the lamb and the lion with the ox in verse 25. It speaks of the restoration of Israel in an Isaiah's day. It uses the figure of speech of expectation of salvation time. It's poetic language. For Isaiah's hearers, it may be seen as nothing more than wishful thinking or a figurative poem or something like that. But we know when Jesus comes, when Jesus rises from the dead, and when Jesus doesn't rebuild Jerusalem as a temple, but actually brings in the heavenly Jerusalem. Then there'll be bigger questions about the nature of the promise of the new heavens and the new earth that are to come. But before we go on to look at Jesus, before we go on to looking at him and its implications for us, I think a good thing to do would be to actually look at chapter 66. Because this new age, this new age that's talked about in the second half of chapter 65, actually comes through a sudden and a great reversal of fortunes, a great reversal of life. See, what you expect to go on isn't going to go on. What you expect to happen isn't going to happen. The destruction by Babylon, will you expect continued slavery and enslavement or something like that? It doesn't happen. It's, it's always like, sorry, this is what they're saying, but you know, you're preparing for exams and they're just some subjects that you've just got no idea about. I'm sure of that, right? Uh, Stuvac is one of those beautiful times where you learn the whole year's work in a day. It's beautiful. <laughs> but you know how it is? It's, I've, I've had experience with this experience. You come to an exam, you have no idea what's going on, and, and then you open up that first question and you think, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? But imagine that. You, you're, you, you, you haven't prepared, you don't know what's going on, you're sitting there, and then the examiner, the, the person walks up the front and says, sorry, the, the truck was, fell over the bridge and the exam papers aren't available, so you don't have to do the exam. It's great, isn't it? Right, I mean, it, it's, it's that sort of, you expect one thing and then some, something doesn't happen. Uh, or, or you might have relatives that you don't really like. But they ring up and, and they say, look, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> They're going to stay with you, right? And, and, um, and the usual thing is, you know, you've got to prepare the house and, and get things ready, release, they're important, all that sort of stuff. But they ring up the night before and say, look, sorry, our kid's sick, we can't come over. And you go, great. <laughs> <laughs> I love my relatives. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? There's a great turnabout of events here that's happening. There's something that you expect and it doesn't happen. Why? This great turnabout event needs to be understood. What's going on here? What's caused this? And so chapter 66 actually starts off by remembering God. Like most of the Bible, it's actually more about God than about us. It actually starts off by remembering God as to who he is and how great a creator he is. Even in the first creation, let alone in the creation that's yet to come. Because in verse 1 it says, Heaven is his throne. The whole earth, so enormous it is for us. This big blue marble is just, well, it's his footstool in God's universe. He's made everything in verse 2. Not make things like we make things. 
Now, one of my great summer projects is to build a shoe cabinet. And so I've got the bits of MDF and I've got a, a power store for Father's Day and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it, right? And the intersecting bits and you make little pigeonholes and you get really nice hardwood and you build the shutters and all that sort of stuff. Well, God doesn't build like that. Not with power stores, anyway. But um, he, he doesn't build as his own. He gathers bits together and puts it together. Have a look at it. Verse 2. All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be. Starting with nothing, he creates everything that's there. That's the God that we deal with. The creators of the heavens and the earth, out of nothing, who creates by words. And so, where does this great creator of the heavens and the earth, where does he live? Where does he live? Where will he live? Where is his resting place? What kind of house would be appropriate for the creator of the heavens and the earth? That's a rhetorical question of, uh, of verse 1. Surely it's not a temple. That's what David had to learn. That's what Solomon had to learn. The great kings of Israel, they learned that. And certainly it's not like nowadays, you get a building with, with the words house of God written on it or something like that. God doesn't live in buildings made of stone. In chapter 66, starts off with the first lesson about God. God is the creator of the universe. God is bigger than anything that we can think of. And his house is not human made. That's the God of the universe. And then it moves into verse 2 with the second lesson that we actually learn about God. Who does he look up to? Who does he esteem? And the answer, paradoxically, is slowly. I don't know whether you've tried it, but looking up to the lowly is actually quite a difficult thing to do. But imagine the heavens of the earth, the Lord of the heavens of the earth, way up there, him looking down to the lowly. It's quite an amazing concept, really. It's an amazing concept that God looks up to anybody in the first but who does he esteem? He esteems the humble, the contrite in spirit, it says in verse 2, and those who tremble at his word. Not three groups of people, but one group of people with those characteristics. See, if you want God to look up to you, if you want God to find favour with you, if you want to enter into his presence, it's not about doing outward things. It's not about paying the right amounts of money to some institution or something like that. It's not even about going on religious pilgrimages. Now that's not how it works. But being contrite and you will meet God. Being broken in spirit in the sense of your unworthiness because of your overwhelming sense of sin and guilt in his presence and you'll start entering in the presence of God. Be humble so that you tremble at God's word and you'll enter into his presence. It's there that you'll meet him. In fact, sometimes doing the outward things, sometimes doing those things that are so external to you, paying that money or going on the pilgrimage, well, that's actually a lot easier than being broken in heart, broken in spirit and broken in mind. Plane trips to Mecca or Rome or whatever it is for you are actually easier than looking at ourselves with all truth and honesty in the degradation of our thoughts and our conscience, looking at our motives truly, looking at our actions truly. One of Isaiah's contemporaries, Jeremiah, actually says, My heart is desperately evil and deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? To acknowledge what we are, who we are, to see ourselves with full honesty before the makers of the heavens and the earth. Well, that actually means that we're out of control. We're no longer initiating things. We're waiting for God's response. 
God's one who's in control. It's his judgment that's important. And we live in a world of make-believe, don't we? Of masks and of cover-up. But if we're going to meet God, if God is going to esteem us, well then, it's the one who is humble and contrite in spirit, in verse 2 of Isaiah 66, who trembles, who trembles at God's word, who stands in awe and fear at what God will say to us. And so the next point in the outline is actually about humility and arrogance. I think that's the, the theme of verses 3 and 4. I think that's what it's about. That's why it's in brackets. But I think that's the theme. See, we can all be arrogant, can't we? In the sense of, you know, we claim to be better than who we are or we do more than we actually do or something like that. But I think there's actually a fundamental arrogance that I want to talk about. That I think there's a fundamental arrogance that actually is what being a non-Christian is all about. And there's a fundamental humility in what being a Christian is about. See, Christians are often seen as arrogant because we have answers and we want to give those answers. Uh, we speak of absolutes, we speak of values, we speak of certainty. And often, like I was said back in week four, I think Philip Jensen in his talk, said that it's often a non-Christian ploy to label us as arrogant, then, he, then the non-Christians don't have to think about us anymore. They don't actually have to deal with what we say. Just label us as arrogant fundamentalists and that's it. And it's especially so when non-Christians, people not of God, think that we don't know or don't think that we have, know the answers or think that we don't know the answers or think that you can't know the answers. Well, frankly, if we've got the answers or under any circumstances, they don't want to hear it anyway. And so under those circumstances, anybody who's got the answers, well, they're seen as arrogant. That's the way it is. Uh, there was a dialogue dinner that I did about a couple of months ago fairly uh, recently, that I was actually accused of being arrogant because I was Christian and I had these views that were so firm and fixed. I was arrogant. And she said that the only humble position to be in was to be an atheist. Until I actually pointed out to her that being atheist is actually quite an arrogant claim because you actually know a negative, you actually know everything. I mean, that's the way it is, isn't it? That's why those true false exams that you do is actually really difficult. Uh, because when you have to say false to something, you actually got to know everything about that subject. Now, much like the explorers who first came to Australia, uh, for them to actually send the news back home and for the people back at home to say, look, there's no way that animals, mammals, can lay eggs and, 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 and have duck bills and can swim in the water like That's just impossible. For them to actually say false to that, for them to actually say no to that, for them to actually know and name you, actually implies that they know everything there is to know about the animal kingdom. You can't do that. It's actually an arrogant position, unless you're really sure, to actually hold a negative position. So they backtracked a little bit. And, and, and she and, and her friend and, and, and her, uh, they actually said, no, no, that's wrong. We're not atheists. We're actually agnostics. We're, we're not atheists. We don't claim to know everything. We're just agnostics. Which is just a funny way of doing the same thing, really. Uh, there's a made-up word by Huxley back in the 18th century, I think. Um, it's a bit of a mongrel word, half Latin, half Greek, but be that as it may. It's supposed to mean that you don't know, agnostic, right? You, you don't know. And frankly, there are real humble agnostics out there. And I hope, if you've been one of these people that's been coming week in, week out to hear these jokes, that you're that sort of person. That you've been coming because you don't know and you want to find out. And that's a great way to be. But frankly, most agnostics that I meet are the hard kind of agnostics who actually claim not that they don't know, but that you can't know. 
See, they're doing the same thing as the atheists, aren't they? But they seem to know all methods of knowing. And so, because they know all methods of knowing, they've ruled out the way of knowing God. I hope you're not a hard agnostic. Because that's arrogant. Because God's people are humble. Those who reject God, they're the arrogant. In verse 4, we actually see it in the religious context, I think. Uh, you see the first phrase, uh, first bit of each phrase of that sentence. Uh, you see people doing all sorts of different things. So, uh, people who slaughter an ox, or sacrifice a lamb, or present a grain offering, or a memorial offering. All these things are commanded in scriptures and are practiced within Israel. They're good and right, upright things, aren't they? At least they sound like it. But you look at the second half of, of, of those phrases. Isaiah says, He who slaughters an ox is just like a person who kills a human being, a murderer. Uh, the one who sacrifices a lamb is just like the one who breaks a dog's neck. Uh, the one who presents a grain offering is just like one who offers up swine's blood, pig's blood. Uh, and those with memorial incense is like well, one who blesses idols. All the things that are actually condemned in Israel. See, you think you're going up to worship God and doing the things that you're supposed to do. But what you end up doing is detestable. There are abominations in God's sight. They're such detestable things that if you knew what you were doing, you wouldn't do them. They went to worship God only to offend him. Why is that? What were they doing that was so offensive? What were they weren't they doing good and upright things? How could God be offended by what they were doing? I think you actually get the answer in the second half of verse three. Have a look at it. See what the problem is. These have chosen their own ways and in their abominations they make delight. Also we choose to mock them and bring upon them what they fear because when I called no one answered. When I spoke they did not listen but they did what was evil in my sight and chose what, they did, not, that, that, what did not please me. Do you see what the problem is? They chose what they wanted instead of what God wanted. They chose their own way instead of listening to God. And fundamentally, that's what arrogance and humility is all about in God's eyes, I think. Arrogance is to live your own way. Humility is to live God's way. Arrogance is to rule yourself. Humility is to submit to him who actually made you. That's the fundamental difference between arrogance and humility. And it'll be seen in the person's attitude to God's word. Because your attitude to his word is actually your attitude to him to reject God's word, to fail to listen to God's word, to shut your eyes, to ignore God's word, to choose your life as though God has never been, God has never spoken, intentionally rejecting God. Well, that's arrogance. That's the arrogance of all arrogance, isn't it? That the creator of the heavens and the earth has spoken and you say, well, I don't know. What is that? To be arrogant, to tell the creator of the heavens and the earth, to rack off, to go jump in the lake, you don't exist. You can't get much more arrogant than that to ignore God. But to hear God speak and to take God's word seriously and to do it his way even when you don't want to, that's what humility is all about. That's what living in truth is all about. But who does God esteem? The humble and contrite who tremble at his word. In verse 5a, you get, get it again in the first half of verse 5. You who tremble at his word. 
those who take God at his word and in fear and trembling. You don't pick and choose bits that you like. Who, who, who believe and act upon it. Who don't feign ignorance when God has spoken. Who don't ignore what God has said. No, no. The humble, who in those old words, are those who read, mark, learn and inwardly digest the very words of God. Those who live God's word, who speak God's word. Because it is God's word. Not because it agrees with what you think. Not because it's what your club and society believe anyway. Not because it's politically correct. Not because it's fashionable. But because God has said it. That's a reason to tremble at his word. But he has spoken. Well, point D is actually about that great reversal. It's about salvation and judgment. Verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and reject you for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified so that we may see your glory. See, those who don't tremble at God's word, well, they hate and they reject. They mock, they revile, they make fun, they torch. They're the ones who make fun of those people who tremble at God's word. And I guess that's what we're going to expect next year. In our 75th anniversary year, another excuse for having a mission year. That's what's going to happen. Don't think it's new. Don't think it's 21st century. Don't think it's recent that people mock Bible believers. It's something that's as old as us are. Those who tremble in fear before the mighty word of the living Lord, they're going to be put down, they're going to be ridiculed, they're going to be excluded. They're said to be intellectually inferior. Haven't you heard that before? Or psychologically insecure or theologically immature. Or socially intolerant. Inadequate. They're the sort of things that are labelled at people who believe in God's word. I was reading the City Morning Herald on Tuesday and uh, there was a great article uh, about the Anglican Diocese of Sydney um, about the plan for growth and the exciting news of the plan to explode more college and, and new trainers and, 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 and new churches and all that sort of stuff. And it's wonderful. Knowing that the church in Sydney is actually growing. Knowing that Bible-believing churches in Sydney are actually growing. I still remember a few weekends ago, quite a few months ago, actually reading uh, an article explaining uh, the, the, the reason for church growth. You know why that is? In an age of insecurity, young people today are turning to preaching and churches that give absolute answers that are clear and black and white because they're living in an age of insecurity. That's a reason. 9-11, that's a reason. Terrorism, that's a reason. They've never given thought to maybe they're actually listening to God's word and acting on the basis of truth. Why is it always that that, that huge numbers and at great distance people are always psychoanalyzed into being insecure personalities because I think it's actually easier to say well that bunch of people there who are going to those Bible believing churches well they're just insecure they're just intellectually immature that's to actually listen yourself it's an easy thing to do isn't it you say well anybody who believes in the Bible they must be insecure mustn't they they must be intellectually warped. It's a wonderful way of putting you down while building yourself up. That's what it is. See, see the wonder of my intellectual maturity. That I can actually live with insecurity. I can live in ignorance. When the maker of all the heaven and all of the earth that actually sent his son into the world, that God has actually spoken, that he has died and has risen, that you might actually know God, 
Do you think God will look up to you because you chose to live in ignorance? God has sent his one and only son to be crucified for you. And yet you think it's mature when you ignore what he has to say. I don't think it's a matter of insecurity or intellectual inferiority or anything like that. I actually think that it's the Spirit of God breaking into people's hearts and remaking them into his people, that they actually listen to him. But suddenly, those people will be overthrown in verse 6. The word of courage to those of verse 5 and who tremble at his word, you actually see in the end of verse 6, but it is they who will be put to shame. Hear the word. Here's the word for you. Here's the uproar from the city, the noise from the temple. It's the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all that they deserve. Hey, you mightn't want to listen to God's word. Well then, the message here for you is that you will hear him in the end. You'll hear him in the uproar. You'll hear him in the noise. You'll hear him in the sound. Because God has spoken and you will hear. Notice how sudden it is in verse 7 and verse 8. Talk of a land, a country, being born in a day. That's amazing. The generation of a whole new place. Talks of it coming to birth even before the woman had time to go into the labour. That's how sudden it is. Quickly, before you're even ready for it, it's going to happen. See, Jesus talks about his coming again like that, doesn't it? Like, like a thief coming in the night, he says. The suddenness, the, the unexpectedness of it will catch you in a moment. But notice that this sudden event isn't primarily about judgment. That's not God's natural work. It's about salvation. That's the natural work of God. It's rescue, it's new life. And so the emotional expectation of this passage is joy in verse 10. It's of comfort and consolation in verse 11. See, for Jerusalem, the city of God, the God who lives everywhere, Jerusalem, the city of God, is actually going to be rebuilt. Only this time it's going to be a place of comfort. It's going to be a place of peace. It's going to be a great place where people are going to be reborn and, and those who mourn for it will actually rejoice. Uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, fashion faux pas in the 70s um, and one of those things was the disco age and, and that's the only way I can remember Psalm 137 nowadays by the rivers of Babylon by Boney M. Um, and I'm sorry that you don't know the tune because it's not a great tune but um, it, it, it's people who, who sing that song who, who long for Jerusalem. See, out in exile, how can you sing songs of Zion? How can you sing about Jerusalem, the, the place where God has shown himself by the rivers of Babylon? How can you do that? Uh, you've destroyed the temple. What hope is there? Well, the great joy here is that those who mourn like that for Jerusalem, well, they will rejoice because God is going to rebuild the city. He's going to set it all up again and it's going to be bigger and better than ever you imagined. And yet, in this sudden transformation, there will be anger and there will be fury, there will be judgment. It's really the same coin, but just the other side of it. Because when God comes through his tremblers, he's going to be putting down those who willfully rebel against God, the arrogant. He'll be rescuing those who mourn, yes, but he'll be destroying those who rejoice in the downfall of Jerusalem, those who laugh at God's people. You can't really have one without the other. Have a look at verse 15. For the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind. 
to pay back his anger in fury and his rebuke in flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord execute judgment, and by his sword on all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. And it goes on in verse 17 that those of other religions in particular he will reject. This sudden reversal, where the faithful who tremble at God's word will be rescued, those who are contrite and humble and are repentant, uh, who live being put down by the world and who live being put down by those of other religions, suddenly they will see the glory of God and they will be given great comfort and joy and their enemies who are putting them down, who are taunting them, they themselves will be put down. The whole thing is actually going to be reversed and turn around and the whole new heavens and the new earth is going to come in. Because that's where chapter 66 turns back to now. The second half of chapter 66 really picks up where the second half of chapter 65 started off with. This is the new age. Verse 18, For I know their works and their thoughts, and I am coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. And so verses 22 and following speaks of this new heavens and this new earth. And in this section, the character of the new heavens and the new earth, the character of the new age is actually going to be seen. And it's going to be characterised by three things that all nations will be involved, that there's going to be priests and Levites in particular, and it's going to be characterised by endurance. All the nations will come because they will see a sign set up amongst them in verse 19 that will draw them all and God will send out his messengers from amongst his people, from amongst the survivors, and they'll take the message to all nations so that people who have never seen him, his fame or his glory will at the end of verse 19 proclaim my glory among the nations. And they start to bring people from all over the world into the city of God, into the new city, into the rebuilt city. And they'll come up to worship God with all the wealth of all the nations. This is not just Israel. The vision is for the whole world. And the amazing thing is what's said in verse 21. God is going to make out of these nations, these pagans, these Gentiles, they're going to be made to be priests and Levites. Not all of Israel could be Levites and priests, you remember. Out of the twelve tribes of Israel, only one tribe were the Levites, who could do the priestly duty. And out of that whole tribe, only one clan could be high priest. And only out of that clan, only one family could be the great high priest who entered into the Holy of Holies once a year, into the presence of God. And yet this new age is going to be so different that even from amongst the nations will be priests and Levites. But another amazing thing is that this new heavens and this new earth though will actually be enduring. It will remain, it will last in verses 22 and 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. It's going to be a great time that will go on forever and ever. It won't be passing away. I hope you know something about great joy, a great foretaste of heaven. I hope you're signing up for national training event. Here's a plug. Um, because national training events or, or conferences are like that, aren't they? You go away, you learn heaps about God, you get a chance to exercise those ministry skills, and you think, wow, this is a taste of heaven. But it ends. 
I've, I've led a team at NTE a few years ago that had more reunions than actually days on mission. You know, days on mission, I think, four and a half, five and a half days, and, and they end up meeting every, every month for the next five, six months afterwards. But at the end of the day, they got sick of it. It ended. Uh, well, it reminded me of um, my two-year-old daughter, uh, two and a half now. Uh, she, she had a second-year um, birthday in June, and it was just a wonderful day for her. Um, turning two, she was the centre of attention. All her friends from playgroup were there. Her godmother was there. Um, her cousins were there. Her aunts and uncles who drove all the way down from Newcastle were there. And she could do nothing wrong that day. You know, anything that she said, everybody would laugh at. She got to blow out the candles about four or five times. It was wonderful. But by the end of the day, people had to go. They had homes to go back to. Cousin had to drive back up to Newcastle. And you should have seen those tears in her beautiful face. You know, they, they got into the car and they're driving up the hill and she just ran out into the driveway, running up the hill, chasing up that car. More party? More party? <laughs> it was so sad. This new heaven, this new earth, this new kingdom of God will not be defiled. It won't end. It will go on forever and ever. It will remain. It will endure. It won't be defiled by idolatry. It won't be defiled by impurity like old Israel was defiled. It won't be divided like old Israel with, you know, the northern ten kingdoms going after one king and, and the southern two kingdoms going after the other king. It won't be destroyed like the old kingdom by the Assyrians or the Babylonians or whoever else came to bear. No, no. It's going to go on forever and ever. And even the judgment will go on forever and ever. And that awesome, awful final verse with which the prophecy of Isaiah actually concludes. Verse 24. And they shall go out and look at the dead bodies of the people who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. It will go on forever and ever. I hope that's strange to your ears and I hope that's strange to your mind. And it's strange to mine as well. And I guess in some ways I don't understand that verse. And yet in other ways, I hope that my mind is remade in the new heavens and new earth. As I think like God, that I'll be rejoicing in that. That God's enemies will be defeated. That sin and evil and death will be no more. Well, that's the last chapter of Isaiah. It's actually an awesome finale, isn't it? Isaiah certainly doesn't end with a whimper. It ends with a great bang. But I guess we need a word to actually understand, well, what does it mean for us? What's the difference that Jesus makes? Because, frankly, we don't wait for a new heavens and new earth in terms of a, a physical Jerusalem. We don't go to Israel anymore. We're not going to look for a lion that's actually not going to gobble up a lamb or something like that. What does it mean for us? What, what are the things that we understand through Jesus? How do we understand this Old Testament passage? Well, I think we learn lots of things, haven't we? We learn that in this section that the God who's the creator of the whole universe, the God who's the creator of the new heavens and the new earth, is not worshipped in place, in a location. It's not worshipped geographically, but he's worshipped in spirit and in truth. He's the God that's not going to fit in the house that human hands make. Do you remember uh, Jesus' answer to that Samaritan woman? 
him and her. Uh, she was asking all sorts of questions and, and there were bits and pieces that were flying around and, and stuff like, well, do you worship God at Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worshipped? Or do you worship at Jerusalem where the Jews worshipped? And you remember Jesus' answer. The time is coming now and has now come that those who worship God worship in spirit and in truth. That's how you worship. God is worshipped when we humbly hear his word, when we stand in awe of him, when we're broken and contrite in spirit, when we ask for his forgiveness, when his word confronts us and we can tremble at it, his living word, that's active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that pierces until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow, until it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's Hebrews 4, isn't it? And before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Now this trembling of God's word at the word of the creator of all things, the word of the creator of the new heavens and the new earth, is not for Israel alone, that's the other thing that we know, but it's for the whole world. God who creates everything speaks. He's worshipped by tremors. And it's not just Israelites, but for all people. And yet there will be a sign amongst them that we read. And I think the sign that's set out amongst the nations that is to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth is the cross by which his son, his glorious son, was executed. That death and evil may be defeated and those who trust in him can draw near to God. I haven't had time to explain all that, but if you're taking notes, I hope you're taking notes, you jot down John chapter 12. John chapter 12, especially verse 41. John chapter 12, verse 41. That's a great turning point of the, of the, of the gospel in John, isn't it? That's a great turning point in John's gospel. Because the first half has all been talking about the signs of glory, the signs that point to the, the glory that's to come. The second half is really about the book of glory. It's about the glory of Jesus who dies and rises from the dead. But this is what John said about Isaiah. In verse 41, Isaiah saw God's glory and so spoke of him, Jesus. His death, his resurrection, his glory. God's glory. God's glory is Jesus' death for all the nations. God's glory is Jesus' death and resurrection that's going to be preached everywhere. All the earth. I guess that's why EU is sending a team to Mongolia at the end of this year. Minus 32 degrees. What is that? You know that spit-kicking temperature? That's how Jen describes it. You spit out saliva, it freezes in the air so that you can actually kick it. What is that? Well, the Mongolians need to hear the gospel as much as we need to be hearing it. For it's all people. For he is the God of all people who saves them by the death of his one and only Son. And it's by that blood of his one and only Son, by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who actually purchased this kingdom of priests. Remember that phrase? Kingdom of priests? You you get it in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. That's another thing to jot down if you like. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Sorry to interpret one vision with another vision, but you get the gist of it. They sing a new song that says, You, Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll to bring judgment and to open its seal. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God, saints from every tribe, from every nation, and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests, serving our God, and they will reign on earth from every tribe, every people, every nation. 
And so the new heavens and new earth bring salvation and judgment, joy and anguish. And those people will be priests. They'll have access to God. No more intermediaries. Full access. And we know that, that, that those who condemn can be spared if the gospel is preached and they trust in the Son of in God's one and only Son that would avoid that perishing. Yet still, what a joy it will be. What a joy we will have when we actually see wickedness defeated, sin defeated, evil perish. When lies and deceit are conquered, when murder and rape and pillage and violence will be no more. That's our vision of the new heavens and the new earth in Jesus Christ. I want to finish off with uh, reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, which is another picture of judgment, of the end of the world, and also the glory of God. Uh, if you'd like to turn up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, starting from verse 3, I want to read from there. We must always give thanks to God for you, verse 3, brothers and sisters, as is right, because of your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith during all your persecutions and the afflictions that you endure. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God and is intended to make you worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. For it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marvelled at on that day among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end we always pray, with, pray for you, asking that our God will make you worthy of his call and will fulfil by his power every good resolve and work of faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we see the glory in Jesus. Now we see the glory in Jesus' death and his resurrection. Now we see Jesus' glory when we proclaim his name to all the nations. Then every eye will see, every tongue will confess. All who share his glory will be those who are humble, those who are contrite in spirit, those who tremble at his word. 